like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. After attending a routine meeting of the Inshore Fisheries Conservation Authority at Morecambe in March 2012, I posted a blog on fishing films and facts informing anglers of a decision to close a legislative loophole concerning the Hesham Bass Nursery area in Lancashire, where undersized bass were being illegally exploited by so-called anglers fishing from the shore. What I didn't appreciate at the time was the depth of feeling and feedback that would evoke amongst Hesham anglers who, wrongly as it would turn out, thought they were about to lose access to Hesham Harbour Wall, which after recently completed sea defence work stretching the full length of Morecambe Promenade, had unfortunately left them with pretty much nowhere else to fish over the high water period. This dissatisfaction was channelled to me via Paul Calvert, who runs the Morecambe-based website and forum Angling Addicts. Paul, along with fellow angling addict Dave Rushworth, then suggested I meet them at Morecambe, which I did, to see how shore anglers were being prevented from fishing all their old favourite marks by a 20 metre wide barrier of huge boulders butted up against a sea defence wall for almost the entire length of the town. Nobody it seems had bothered to ask sea anglers, who are an obvious stakeholder group, just what they thought of the scheme. It seems they just went ahead and did it, which raises the question that if it needed to be done to reduce the flooding risk to seafront properties, would it not have been better to have gone about it in an equally effective yet appreciably more angler-friendly way? Well, I most certainly didn't have the answer to that particular question, but I was very soon pointed in the direction of a man that might, Professor Gerd Masseling, who is based at Plymouth University. So as I was scheduled to visit Plymouth a few weeks later to interview Mike Millman and J.J. McVicker for audio angling, I decided to contact Gerd to see if I could get a more informed opinion on a topic that can have very profound implications for all sea anglers, many of whom would more certainly benefit, as I did, from having an introduction to the subject. But first things first, an introduction from the man himself. My name is Gerd Masselink, which is a, quite a difficult name for English people to pronounce, but it's a Dutch, it's a Dutch name. Um, what's called a coastal geomorphologist, which means I study why coastlines look the way they, they look. I study what they look like, what the processes are, the role of waves and tides, those sorts of things. I'm in fact a, a professor in coastal geomorphology at the University of Plymouth. I've been doing that for 15 years actually and my, my real speciality is beaches. I look at nearshore sediment transport, the movement of sand and gravel on beaches. Presumably then, Coastlines and coastal defences are potential sources of problems to all manner of people who either live near to them, use them, and probably most important of all, pay for their upkeep. So with that in mind, an overview of the need for and value of the right kind of coastal defences might help set the scene for what we're going to be talking about in an angling context a little bit later on in this interview. Oh, that's a big question. We go for hours on that. Now, I guess the, the first thing to say is that coastlines are preferred sites of not only habitation but also recreation and also in terms of infrastructure so they're, they're very cherished sites from a, from a societal point of view population densities on the coastline are higher than anywhere else away from the coast populations are growing in coastal areas faster than anywhere else on the coast so that's the first thing and then the second thing is coastlines are under threat whether we're looking at sea level rise at the moment or even if we leave the sea level rise out there's, there's always storms and big waves and big tides and beaches so even without the sea level rise coastlines are under threat they're often low lying which means they're at risk of coastal flooding and also coastal erosion so to preserve our human occupation against these threats we often need coastal defences 
The engineering aspect of how we go about defending our coastlines will have evolved greatly since the first time the value was realised. So briefly, could you talk us through the transition between those first early attempts and modern day sea defence structures? At the very, very early stages, humans adapted to being flooded or being threatened by basically not over-investing in terms of infrastructure in the coastal area. Uh, they would just use the coastline, but they wouldn't actually build large infrastructures there. And, and when sea levels would rise or when storms would become more prevalent, people would just withdraw and, and live somewhere else. And we were talking about medieval and even before that. Once we started to become a bit more um, savvy, I guess, a bit more smarter about technologically smarter, we could start developing the coastline and protecting our interest in the coastline usually by big, big coastal defences. And I guess the high point of, of coastal defences is the Victorian era, where vast amounts of concrete and stone were thrown at the shoreline with the idea of keeping the sea at bay. And, and that's when coastal communities really grew a lot because they could build behind these big defences. So that's sort of 1800s, 1900s, and even to the mid-1950s, that was very much the, the strategy. It's just build, engineer your way out of any problems that the coast or the sea might throw at you. But now, in the last 20, 30 years, there's been an increased tendency to work with nature rather against nature. So rather than build big defences that sort of resist the sea, it's actually working with the forces of nature. So this hard engineering that I just talked about has been replaced by what's called soft engineering. And soft engineering is not relying on concrete and steel and rubber mount breakwaters and all that sort of stuff. Soft engineering is, for example, beach nourishment, basically bringing sand in and build beaches rather than build seawalls. It's things like managed realignment, so withdraw when you can rather than build a seawall. Encouraging the growth of development of sand dunes, which are sort of natural defences. So there's been this change from hard engineering up to the 1980s almost to soft engineering. And we see that the soft engineering becoming increasingly important and in some areas it's the main way of coastal defence now. Presumably the early Victorians would also have been well aware of the dynamic properties of particulate beaches and in particular sand as evidenced by the many old wooden groins now tending to be replaced by boulder groins both of which are of interest to anglers because of the differing ways these can attract fish. Well, groins are one type of coastal defence that deal with the problem of longshore transport, which is the movement of sand or gravel moving along the shore. And you can sort of imagine if you have a you know, five-kilometre stretch of coastline and one half of the beach, that the sand has been taken away by longshore transport, and moved to the other side of the beach, in order to stop that or check that transport, you try to block the longshore transport with structures that are perpendicular to the shoreline. Now it's not great to completely block the sediment transport because if you completely block the longshore transport you're going to get problems behind your structure. So wooden groins are sort of are designed to let some through because they're sort of permeable. They're either uh, made out of poles with, with gaps in it or they're quite low. So the sediment can partly bypass the, the wooden groins. So you're not completely block it which is a good thing if you are behind the structure. So you trap a little bit, but you don't trap everything. Rock groins tend to be shorter on gravel beaches. And again, they're a bit shorter because you want to let some of the gravel to go around the groins again. To, to completely block littoral drift is a very bad idea. It very well protects the area in front of the groin, but it causes major problems behind the groin. So that's sort of the, the story of groins. 
Would I be right in thinking then that from an engineering perspective, if a series of groins are not in balance with each other, that too can lead to problems? Depends what you mean, building them in, not in balance. Well, the particular example I have in mind is one of two case studies I want to discuss with you later, which appear to be causing problems to small boat anglers in my local club, and I brought along a series of photographs to support both issues. The tide where our slipway is located floods south to north and parallel to the coast. To the south of the slip itself we have a long run of old Victorian wooden groins. Then approximately 50 metres to the north, the local authority had built a huge, very long boulder groin, which besides being a boating hazard at high water, coincides with substrate erosion from beneath the launching slip, at times to the point where the end has a sheer drop from it, rendering it unusable until it gets restored. If it's way too big for the type of environment, it would provide a complete blockage of the sediment transport moving along that coastline. Now you can build big groins because maybe you want to protect an area that is extremely valuable to you. And you, what you then basically do, you ensure that the area that you're protecting, the area that is between the groins, the big groins, is being protected. But then you, you're quite happy to give up on the areas outside the groined area. It's, you've got to bear in mind that if you change the nearshore sediment transport, the movement of sand and gravel along a coastline, if you alter that, you're going to change the morphology, what the beach looks like. You're going to cause areas of erosion, basically meaning the coastline is being cut back, and you're going to cause areas of accretion, basically meaning the, the shoreline will build up. And if you have an area that's extremely important to you that you want to preserve, you can do that. You can design something that will preserve that area, but it will go at the cost of the areas outside your protected area, because those are the areas that you're depriving of sediment that you're trapping in your protected area. And in terms of efficiency with regard to wooden and boulder groins, is one better than the other? I'm not a practicing coastal engineer. I don't know the price of wooden groins and, and rock groins. Uh, and I'm not 100% sure that I mean there's two types of, there's different types of wooden groins as well, so I'm not quite sure which ones you mean. Do you, you mean the ones with planks? Yes, standard porcelain and planks. So going back to your question, what is one better than the other, or are they just variations on the same theme? The wooden groins are cheaper and they won't last as long and they are generally used on a smaller scale smaller scale problems you don't put wooden groins on a you know on a, a large coastline with lots of long sediment transfer and big problems you throw rock at it if you want to throw something at it so they're more localized sort of a smaller scale feature and that they're, they're cheaper and they don't last that long it's horses for courses really you can't say one's better than the other if it's a small scale problem yeah the wooden groins would be better if it's a big problem then the rock groins would be better and are there other ways of achieving the same result? Yeah, well, you, you could allow the longshore sediment transport to take sand or gravel away from one part of the beach. It won't be lost. It'll go somewhere else where it might build wider beaches. So what you can do is something called bypassing or, or sort of a, a beach enrichment. You could take the sand and gra or gravel from the area that's building up and bring it back to the area that's eroding. So you, you're recirculating the sediment. This is what they've been doing, uh, have been doing for a long time on the Dungeness coastline where the, the nuclear power station is. It's a gravel beach, a large amount of longshore transport, and the nuclear power station is actually built on an eroding coastline. Basically means that they have to somehow bring gravel back to protect this, this nuclear power station. And they were just driving trucks practically day and night, continuously taking gravel from one side of the beach, bringing it back to the other side of the beach. So bringing back the sand or the gravel that was being transported by the longshore currents. So that's another way of doing it. I mean, that would be soft engineering. 
Not soft on the bank balance, though, which in our case is ratepayers' money. Yes, but less impact, aesthetically more pleasing, I guess, than a, than a bunch of groins. On the short term, cheaper. It doesn't require a major investment up front. And you also have flexibility. I mean, once you put a, a whopping big groin in, that's it. There's nothing to play with. You can't just make it shorter a, a year later and make it bigger again. No, that's it. Whereas with the the bypassing or the nourishment, you can change that depending on demand. So one year you might have a truck every day, and another year you might only need a truck every week. So you, you're much more flexible in, in playing with the parameters. Turning now to larger scale sea defences such as at Blackpool, where the promenade is walled for many miles, what effect, if any, can these have on wave patterns and beach dynamics? First thing to point out that on an area like Blackpool, it's justifiable to come up with big Victorian style defences because it's so much real estate value at, at stake that you, you can't afford to lose that. So a, a whopping big seawall hard engineering is, is, is clearly the optimum way of protecting it. Loads of different problems that you can get with seawalls. Uh, I guess the, the most obvious one is that you prevent the beach from adjusting because you're basically tying it up to the seawall and it can't move like normal beaches do. You're never going to get dunes, for example, forming, or you're never going to get like a big healthy beach forming in front of a seawall. So you move the natural ability of the beach to adjust. But I guess that's what you want, because you don't want the beach to adjust back and cut into the, into the town of Blackpool, so you, it's what you want to achieve. A big seawall, a big reflecting structure, causes waves when they crash into it, they reflect back off the wall the way light reflects off a mirror. It then would meet an incoming wave, causing huge turbulence, scour of the of the beach at the bottom of the seawall not only would could you actually make the problems worse by removing the sand away from from the beach because of this extra turbulence you're also going to end up undermining your seawall by scouring away big holes underneath the structure and if you don't make the structure deep enough which what they would have done in the early days the whole thing will collapse and this process of reflection and extra turbulence requires the seawalls to be anchored really deep. And if you, if you look at a seawall, it may only be like an iceberg. It might only be three or four metres above the sand level. It goes five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten metres deep to prevent it from being undercut. It could also cause, especially in, together with, with groins, it can cause really dangerous swimming conditions by this extra turbulence. It, it causes extra currents that concentrate at certain parts of the beach. So it could prevent a, a real hazard for, for swimmers as well. It might actually be good for anglers in combination with groins because you, you add variability to it. It's not just like a boring flat sandy beach. You get you know you, you create refugia, you create quiescent bits and more turbulent bits, so that might be actually but a good thing. But yeah, the and the cost is, is huge, it's very expensive. Now just up the coast at Morecambe, and discussing this is the primary reason for this visit, they've approached their sea defences in a very different way. Originally, it had been just a low wall which allowed easy fishing access to shore anglers, and in particular, disabled anglers, over the high water period, which could be very productive. Now, that particular wall is still there, but in more recent times, a lot of additional work has also been done, both in re-sculpting the coastline and reinforcing the wall from North Morecambe right through to Hesham with boulder cladding, stretching many metres out from that wall, making sea angling absolutely impossible. In addition to this, other boulder features such as fishtail groins have also appeared, without, I would add, any consultation whatsoever with local anglering groups, all of which has collectively changed the town's beaches beyond recognition, with huge knock-on effects to arguably the biggest stakeholder group around. My question then is, 
could whatever it is the local authority had targeted to achieve not have been better engineered in some other way so as not to kill stone dead the interests of such a large group of people. I haven't seen the picture but I imagine it's a low seawall and then a 20 metre boulder field in front of it. What it's doing is it's stopping the waves from directly crashing into the seawall, reflecting, causing extra turbulence, probably doing damage to the wall. So it's actually taking the energy out of the waves by this boulder field. At the same time, by taking some of the energy out, you probably also reduce the uh, likelihood of overtopping. Because by the time these waves have sort of moved across this boulder field, they're not very strong anymore, they're not going to overtop the seawall. So it's, it's probably a combination of protecting the seawall from being damaged anymore and probably also reducing the overtopping uh, and, and therefore the coastal flooding, I'd imagine. From the talks I've had with the local angling representatives, you are right on the sea flood flooding. So what they could have done, they could have also made the seawall higher, but they probably would have needed to strengthen the base of the seawall at the same time, which would have been an alternative. But every sort of that causes a whole bunch of other problems because it could have meant the seawall was so high that people could no longer see the sea from the town. And then you get all sorts of people complaining about you know, horizon pollution and they can no longer look at the sea. So it's a balance between the, you know, the different interests of all the stakeholders that are there. They have to be sort of served and their interests have to be compromised. And at the same time having the responsibility to prevent erosion and coastal flooding from happening. So there's different types of coastal defence that can be applied, but it's, it's always a combination of who's involved, the cost, the longevity of it that results in one practice being preferred rather than another one. But there's always more than one option because of defence. You say it's a balance between the interests of the various stakeholder groups, but that isn't how Morecambe's anglers see it, many of whom are also ratepayers. Their argument is one of very clear winners and losers, with anglers unfortunately, and without a fair hearing it has to be said, falling into the latter category. So if the argument of cost wasn't an issue, what potential alternatives could have been used? How much more costly might these have been? And what, if any, remedial measures could now be offered as partial compensation? Cost wasn't an issue. You get um, sand and gravel from elsewhere. Use beach nourishment and build a new beach of sand and gravel from elsewhere. If cost is not an issue. Importing it, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get it from somewhere else. Ideally from somewhere where there's too much of it. In an ideal case, you want like a place where maybe a, a prograding spit system, which is like a, a beach that's sort of building out into an estuary because of longshore drift. Those sorts of things tend up blocking up a harbour. So in an ideal world, if you've got something like that, you can get the gravel from there, you solve the problem of siltation and, and, and blocking off the harbour in one location, and you bring it to somewhere where that gravel is needed. But you know, it's, um, it's not always that straightforward. But yeah, if you had money was no problem, then you would get rid of all the hard defences and you'd build that up with gravel and soft material. You encourage sand dunes to, to grow and, and form, form sand dunes as your first as your line of defence as well. Unfortunately, as things stand now, for Blackpool and Morecambe that would not be possible, as both towns stand little more than a road's width away from the sea wall. And even if it was an option, certainly at Blackpool, which sits midway along the file coast, it probably wouldn't happen for political reasons either, as the stretch of the coastline we're talking about here falls within the jurisdiction of three local authorities, each with its own agenda. Wyborough Council, which is the furthest north and the one where we have the problem of undermining the launching slip adjacent to the boulder groin, from the top end of that slipway have built brand new sea defences southwards all the way to the boundary with Fileborough Council. This comprises a run of steep concrete steps, backed up by a low wall with rubber seal doors which can be shut in storm conditions, 
all of which in angling terms at least makes the promenade even easier to access and to fish than it was before. The complete opposite to the Morecambe response and hats off to them for that. So given all the information I brought down with me regarding the Morecambe option, would concrete steps not have been a better answer there too? Um, I'll ask, ask that question in a minute, but, but you pointed out something really interesting, which is that there's three councils involved, and, and then you said Wyborough Council built something up to the council border or something like that. That is exactly what is one of the key problems with coastal engineering and coastal management and coastal defence, which is the sand or the gravel or the coastal processes, they don't see borders. And if you protect the coastline in one area, as I indicated earlier, you might actually make problems worse in another area. And when you've got different authorities involved, and some authorities might have more money than others, so one coastal authority might put a whopping big thing in to protect their coastline, causing huge problems for their poorer neighbours. And that's something that's being tackled at the moment through the national shoreline management plans, is to break down those institutional and legislative boundaries by taking a much larger regional, even a national view of coastal defence, because you cannot resolve local coastal defence problems locally, if you see what I mean, because the, the cause for the problems are bigger than, than where the problem occurs. So in terms of whether steps would have been a better option than a boulder field, in terms of protecting it and causing the waves to lose some of the energy before they would have reached the sort of the final line of defence, yeah, that probably steps would have done that. I imagine it'd be a lot more expensive than a boulder field. And a lot more angler-friendly too, without presumably causing problems for other stakeholders at the same time. Fine, yeah, possibly. And as a secondary line of defence, they had that wall and sealed doors I mentioned earlier. Okay, yeah, yeah. See, that, that's sort of a smart way of saving money as well, rather than over-engineer something to protect something against even the perfect storm. You design something slightly lower, but then you put some safety measures in, which is what you described there. Okay, so you've given us a nice working overview of the problems and solutions to be considered by coastal engineers, and I am very grateful for that. Can we now look a little more closely at the specific case studies which we so far only briefly touched upon, starting with the one that is clearly affecting the most people, that being Morecambe. The seawall boulder cladding problems and benefits should now be quite clear. But what they've also done is a lot of additional engineering in the form of boulder outcrops and fishtail groins, which for those that may never have seen such a feature, is a long boulder groin pointing either seaward or angled across the beach, which splits at the end curving in opposite directions like a fish's tail, and is often paired up with a second similar feature a short distance away, the result being one of the most dramatic changes over such a short period of time to any set of beaches I personally have ever seen. In some adjacent areas beyond these groins, the sand has been stripped down to the underlying boulders making tractor access to the small boat launching difficult, only to have that sand heaped up elsewhere creating soft banks you wouldn't dare drive over, and in addition, the complete smothering of the town's paddling pool. The whole dynamics of the shore have changed, though in fairness it probably won't have killed off all the fishing potential. More a case of changing the emphasis on finding those fish, with, as I mentioned earlier, no chance of doing so from the promenade if you're disabled, which if I were cynical, I could say looks like a deliberate attempt at engineering promenade anglers completely out of the equation. Yeah, well, it sounds like whatever, whoever designed it didn't take the interests of the anglers at heart. Maybe you were not too important a stakeholder for your voice to be heard, I guess. But if you are creating areas of sedimentation or accretion, 
like you described, that sand's got to come from somewhere, so it's likely to produce areas of erosion, which is exactly what you, what you described. There's a finite amount of sediments on a beach, and if it collects somewhere, it must have come from somewhere else. And you, you can't have a coastal engineering structure that creates new sand or gravel. You can only do that by bringing it in from elsewhere. Do local authority engineers not have an obligation, if not to anglers, then to the environment in terms of considering habitat disruption, particularly where there are other options available which could do just that? I've got a pass on that. I don't know, I don't know much, much about that, whether they're obliged to take note. If it's a national park or if it's a marine protected area, obviously there's some statutory requirements to you know, abide by the rules, but if their, their main interest is, is, is coastal defence and coastal protection, and I think most of the other things play second fiddle there. And maybe they also wanted to get sand into these bays for the holiday makers, though I'm not sure that burying one of the biggest attractions, the kiddies paddling pool, was what they had intended. Yeah, okay, well I mean the coastal defence solutions, or um, maybe not solutions because it's a problem if you're not solution. Uh, coastal engineering projects. There's more than one type of project that can address the issues that are there and what they choose is compromise between the different stakeholders, uh, monetary terms and all those sorts of things. And in this case it's clearly that they thought that the tourists are maybe more important to them than the anglers and important usually means bringing in money. So I guess I suggest if Angus starts spending a bit more money, maybe they become a, a stronger stakeholder group. Acting as part of that defence system, down at the south end of the promenade, close to where Morgan Ding Yangling Club are now struggling to get the tractors and trailers over the mid-shore extension of the boulders making up road and skier, the engineers did also build a small pier, which will probably facilitate a dozen anglers or so. That is the only angling concession and accessible location throughout the whole length of the town. And even this is of little use as it has now become part of the problem, causing sand accretion to form a non-fish holding bank just to the north side and an exposed boulder field to the south, neither of which are conducive to the main types of fish found in these parts, which are flatfish. So what I suggest we do now is look at the photographs I've taken, plus images of the Morecambe coastline from Google Earth, after which my next question will be, Having looked at the fishtail groins, the boulder cladding, the exposure of the rocks on the mid-shore and the sand build-ups in the various bays, from an engineering point of view, is it possible that these very recent changes to Morecambe's intertidal region of the shore could actually be the result of the most recent bout of sea defence engineering? The first thing that made sense is when you showed the picture of the fishtail groins and said that the bays are much fuller of sand now than they, than they have ever been, and the paddling pool being buried with sand to sort of make sense. And there the groins, the fish groins, have done exactly what they're supposed to do, I think, which is trap the sand to add more volume to the beach, and not only bring it in but keep it there. So it's done that, but then you've got to ask the question, where does that sand come from? Because, like I said, coastal engineering structures don't create sand, so if they cause accretion at one location, you've got to cause erosion at another location, because that's the area that has contributed to sand. So, if you have vast amounts of sand in the bays now that weren't there before, it's got to come from somewhere, and then when you describe those natural, those short platforms with these boulders on it being exposed now, to me that suggests that's the source of where that sand has come from. Now, in a way, from an engineering point of view, it's done exactly what it's supposed to do. Although, now the exposure of those boulders on, on those platforms is causing some other problems. 
Why this has occurred, and we can only sort of speculate on that, but, but it might be something to do with the fact that the groins sort of stop the longshore transport. They stop the dynamics of the system on a, a shoreline like what you just described with really strong tidal currents because of the big tides, occasionally very high wave action as well. There would be a lot of sediment going around in the system, a lot of sand going along the beach, maybe some going offshore, maybe circulating back through the tidal currents. It would be a very active sediment circulation system that has now been interrupted. And it, it may be that this interruption of this sediment transport system has only resulted in the trapping of sediment and not, no longer the circulation and therefore the exposure of those short platforms with the boulders seaward of, of the new beaches. So if, as you're saying, the engineering here has done exactly what it was designed to do, that, to me as an angler, suggests that it was engineered deliberately then to have the effect on anglers that we are now suffering as a result. Maybe. I, I don't know. Did they know that the sand cover was very thin? Because that's what it looks like. It looks like this natural boulder platform probably only had a, a thin veneer of sand, maybe half a metre, maybe a metre. And you take half a metre or a metre of that sand away and you push it all into the base, that's maybe not a lot of change, but it's a huge change in substrate. It goes from sand to rock. Maybe they, they weren't aware that there was such a limited amount of sand there. Uh, maybe they were not concerned with that underwater, that subtidal bit, because they were all focused on trapping sand in these new bays. I personally don't buy that one. Either that, they're incompetent, or worse still, just not bothered. I'm a big fan of archaeological programmes on the TV, such as Time Team. One of the key tools they use for exploring subsurface sites is ground-penetrating radar operated from a helicopter, which comes up with that sort of information at a stroke. Would this not have been the obvious tool to use, knowing they were about to relocate huge portions of the beach elsewhere? Yeah, if the consultants were given enough money to do all the prep work, they probably would have, they could have done uh, things like some coring or some, ground, some seismic work to find out how thick the, the sand layer is. Maybe they did it. I don't know. I don't know the details of, of this particular uh, engineering project. But from an engineering point of view, I'm sure that the key remit is to improve coastal defence by creating beaches in these bays. It's done exactly what it's supposed to have done, I, I would argue. From an angling perspective now, there appear to be two ways of looking at what's happened. At Morecambe we have bass, which are not a common fish species but are highly prized by anglers and like broken bouldery ground. And we also have the more abundant flatfish, with place in particular which anglers also love, and which prefer cleaner ground, both of which have been redistributed around the area to varying extents. So we haven't necessarily lost fish, but what we have lost is the access to them, and to the shore itself, which puts us in a very much worse position than we were in before. Yeah, well maybe they didn't think it through completely, because what you're saying is they've actually created two different habitats now where there was mainly only one, because they've created a new boulder. No, not exactly. We've always had the two. Now we just have more of the boulders, plus areas of sand which even clean ground species of fish are not going to find attractive, such as shallow soft banks within these new bays, which we couldn't access anyway at high water, even if they did attract the fish. Yeah, well, you need to talk to the engineers about that. I mean, maybe they can, with some minor modifications, they can build some platforms or maybe they build some bits that you can actually... Maybe you need a stronger rod so you can actually cast over the boulders, I don't know. No, it's getting the gear back in that's the problem over the boulder cladding. 
right, okay, I can see the problem and go back to this, that whatever solution they come up with, whatever design they come up with within the constraints of their budget, they, I'm sure they do the best they can, it is impossible to please everyone. Every coastal defence project represents a compromise and there's always going to be people that are unhappy or less happy than other people. If they were to build a higher seawall and stepped, you would have been happy and the residents would not have been happy because they would no longer be able to see across the, the seawall, for example. So they wouldn't be happy. If there was more money spent on something that more people would be happy with, that money would have come from somewhere else. And it's always a compromise. And the solution that they end up with should be reached that through extensive consultation with all the stakeholders there. And once that's done from the outset, and as soon as the parameters are being sort of specified at the outset, people realise that not everybody will get 100% what they want. But hopefully through the process of consultation, the solution will be arrived at that everyone's sort of reasonably happy with. And what this sounds like, is that I don't think it's a shortcoming in the design, but it's more like a shortcoming in the process that resulted in this particular design. It sounds like your interests in this case have not either have not been considered or have not been invited. I, I don't know what the process, but it's not a shortcoming of the design itself, I think. It's the process that the designers reached at. If this project was about to go on the drawing board again and stakeholder interest rather than cost was a more important factor than previously, what alternative methods of achieving the same goal of reduced flooding might it have been better to employ? Well, I think what you said the step design probably would have been better from your point of view I'm sure they could come up with something nice because and I, I guess from an aesthetic point of view you can use steps for to sit on and do all sorts of things on it as well I mean, but I think it's a hell of a lot more expensive certainly for that long stretch of coastline that you're looking at and um, we're looking at two more than a kilometer isn't it oh very much more yeah I think that would have been overly expensive but with consultation at important angling locations they could have put some step gaps in at least. Yeah, yeah, they could have built in short segments of steps, yeah. Moving back to the file course now and the boat launching slip that gets undermined by the action of the water on the big tides, there is a stepped area from that point all the way down to the political border, which seems to serve everyone well, from anglers, dog walkers and general beach enthusiasts right through to children playing on the beach. I launched my boat from the slit and butted up to the curved end of those steps. Then we had that big boulder groin another 50 metres or so on the other side. Now that boulder groin according to the local council was put there to protect the launching slip from becoming undermined. But in the almost 30 years or so that I've been using it, it wasn't until the sea defence work in the boulder groin appeared that these problems started to occur. You have a, a stepped area which is all new, it stops at the border with Blackpool and then on the border there's the launching slip and there's also the big groin. No, the slip is at the other end of the steps where the sea defence is switched to two plane walls, one behind the other. Okay, so what you're saying, the, the stepped area is new and yes. the problem has occurred since the steps have been put in place. Yeah. Okay, and you're asking whether the undermining of the slipway near the big groin has got anything to do with the new step design. Again, without looking into detail, I can't really conclusively comment on that, but have a, a large area with a step groin, one can imagine that that will again have an effect on the initial sediment transport circulation. It may have deprived the area where the slipway is from some of the sediments. 
the waves would still be there, the currents would still be there, and they would then get the sediments from somewhere else if they don't get it from another area. So yeah, it could be, could be. There are a few bits of boulders tagged onto the end of one of the old wooden groins just after the start of the stepped area, which is also a recent addition. Perhaps then this should have also been brought out as far as the big boulder groin, and in addition, be curved in at the ends like Morecambe's fishtail groins to encourage accretion rather than erosion, particularly as this is also the spot where most families and children also go onto the beach. Yeah, one can imagine two um, little groins with the slipway in the middle, you mean? Mm. Yeah, that, that could be, but you see, it's very hard to predict what happens because all of a sudden you might get so much sand coming into that little bay that your slipway is all of a sudden under the sand. It's easy afterwards to say, well, if they would have done that, wouldn't that have been better? I think what you're saying, uh, yes, yeah, possible with a small groin and a small creating a small bay area, the slipway wouldn't have been undermined, but there might have been so much sediment coming into the bay that the slipway would have been ending up in, in sand, and then you've got to extend the slipway. Coastal engineers, some of them say it's an art, not a science, and what they mean with that is that it's not like maths, where you have a problem and you, you throw some maths at it, some, some equations at it, and you get a clear-cut answer. It's, it's not like that. The coastal environment is very dynamic and it's, it's characterised by what's called feedback loops. And what that means is that if you change one thing, for example, putting in a groin, you not only change the appearance of the beach, you're changing the processes, the waves, the way the waves break, the strength of the currents, all those sorts of things. And once you start changing the way the waves break and the way the currents go, you're changing the way the sediment is moving around it. And then once you start moving the sediment around, you also start affecting the waves again because then the beach changes its character. So you go into this feedback loop that runs away from what, what you originally had and just a small addition, like a small groin build, might set into motion a whole train of events that are, you weren't foreseeing, you weren't predicting. And that's why often in coastal engineering, it's not like a problem and then you have one design and it's fixed. It, it often needs fine-tuning because there were some unforeseen uh, things happening. But unfortunately, once it's been built, the money's dried up, and there's, there's rarely money to rectify any issues that occur or fine-tune it. Usually the project's finished, the files go on the, in, you know, they go on the, on, on the shelves, and people move on to the next problem. And it's that fine-tuning and that correcting unanticipated problems is what should really have been done, this is required, but is rarely done. From an indirect perspective, on the file, that is scheduled to be done by way of a £300,000 EU grant to move accreting particulate material by road from Russell Point and the entrance to the river wiring towards Fleetwood at the top end of the file coast. The plan, as I understand it, is to bring it back down to Cleveland's where we have our slip and from where I'm told it's being eroded in the first place. Again, that was never a problem in the past, besides which, what happens when the money runs out? Maybe that money would be better used rectifying the cause. Some would label this as a soft engineering eco-friendly remedy, while others see it as a complete waste of money. Well, they're both right. It is an eco-friendly way, and it's less disruptive, and you can fine-tune it year by year. You can do it as required, almost. At the same time, one could argue it's a waste of money, because you have to keep on doing this forever, and it will trickle back in. But that's, that's the whole idea of soft engineering. You don't let the system perform naturally. You don't stop the system from performing naturally. So yes, it will come back and you will have to maintain it. So in the long run, it will probably be more expensive. But at least you know what you're doing. Um, you're not building something that will cause big problems elsewhere. 
Taking sand from an area that's silting up and causing problems, putting it in a truck or a barge or a pipeline and pumping it to another area where there's erosion problems, is not going to cause any new problems because you're basically rectifying what you don't want to happen. So, in a way, it's, it's a much safer sort of solution, but you have to maintain it and it's probably more expensive in the long run for that particular location. Now, going to the criticism of why didn't they fix the problem in the first place, well, they've tried fixing problems before like that, the, the earlier example with the fishtail groins, they've fixed one problem, which is the coastal defence problem, and they've created another problem. And that's just the natural result of hard engineering, is you fix a problem, you cause another problem. Hopefully, the, the second problem that you're causing is smaller than the first problem. That's not always the case. You cannot simply fix easily a coastal erosion problem. There's no easy solutions in, in engineering, like I said. It's not like maths, where you have a single answer coming out of one problem. A bit like weather forecasting, then. There is an amount of uncertainty about what you're implementing. And we can only try as we use our models, we use our understanding of coastal processes, we try to in, we can involve as many people that have a stake in the coastal environment to come up with a solution, but that doesn't guarantee that you'll have a solution that is 100% correct at the end. In a nutshell then, more can be in the main problem here. It all boils down to access, not so much being denied as having been taken away, which in many ways is far, far worse. Yes, yes, but you, I'm sure you also agree that in any coastal environment, any coastal problem, there are tens of stakeholders. There's kite surfers, there's wind surfers, there's dog walkers, there's joggers, there's visitors, there's storekeepers, there's loads of different people. And I'm sure you appreciate the difficulty in, in making sure everyone's reasonably happy, and sometimes people get overlooked. Yeah, but who on that list would be happier with boulder cladding, and more to the point, who would feel as though their interests were being denied if some other form of coastal defence, such as steps, had been put in there instead? Well, if you have to pay for the steps in, in the whole area and your taxpayers' money goes to that, then you would be unhappy, especially if you don't like beaches. If you don't live on the coastline, you have to look at how these things are funded as well. Again, I don't know the detail of, of this particular design, but there's likely to be a large amount of, of DEFRA, government money, going into it. And this is people like me, who don't live in Lancaster, and if you'd ask me, would I be prepared to spend an X amount of money to build a three-kilometre step shoreline because it would keep everyone happy in Lancaster, or would I be rather be happy with another design that would only cost uh, maybe a, a quarter of the cost that would be almost as good? So, okay, not as good locally, but in the end, it's taxpayers' money that's being spent. Yeah. Having once worked for DEFRA, and having a seat on the Inshore Fisheries Conservation Authority, I'm well used to considering stakeholder inputs. But that is not what happened here. Anglers, quite simply, were not consulted. And while it might sound emotive, in truth they feel they were quite simply ignored. And that is why they feel so badly done to. Half a year ago I went to a, some sort of a seminar sort of day of a symposium on the way coastal engineering projects are being managed now and the person who was talking, I don't know which company he was from, he was saying they now spend almost 50% of their budget on stakeholder consultation and all the stuff that goes on before they actually start designing and building it and it's just been like a, become a major part of the project is actually the stakeholder involvement. Mm. For this particular one, do you feel that process hasn't been carried out properly? 
having met with some of the anglers and the representatives locally, they certainly feel that has been the case. I'm told that the first that they knew about it was when the fencing started going up, long after the opportunity for consultation was gone. They weren't invited, so there was no open consultation no. or something like that? No. Okay. Well, that, now that's a shortcoming of the process, because I, I, I would be surprised if there's more stakeholders that may have been a bit disappointed with the outcome that weren't involved either. But I think nowadays that it's supposed to involve everyone who has a stake. Everyone should be given an opportunity. It doesn't mean that everyone will get what they no. want, but everybody should be given an opportunity to input into the process. Which is probably an appropriate time to say thank you for your input here and apologise for bending your ear when in actual fact, until I walked through the door, you knew as little about the scheme as the Morecambe anglers did before it all kicked off. To target the people who are more deserving of being asked awkward questions, I will also invite both sets of engineers to have their say, though I doubt that either will respond. And should that be the case, I will also forward on a copy of this interview so they're at least aware of the bad feeling there is out there in the angling community towards the measures they've taken. Meanwhile, let me say a very sincere thank you to Professor Gerd Messerling for giving up one of his bank holidays to do this fascinating interview. Mm -hmm.